morning, everyone. Um, it'd be great if you could follow along with the uh, Bible reading this morning. It is uh, Romans chapter 8, uh, reading verses 31 to 39. It can be found on page 1,756 of the uh, Bibles on your chairs, or you can follow on the screen behind me. Uh, Romans chapter 8, 31 to 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sleep as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks, Simon. I want something a little scary with you this morning. I want to let you into the inner workings of my mind a little bit. Don't be surprised if you leave covered with cobwebs this morning. We're going to go inside my head for a little bit. Here's how my mind works. It's nighttime and I'm about to go to bed. And for, that, for me, that means that I'll do a bit of a lap around our house. I'll go around and make sure that the lights are all turned off. I'll check that the front door's locked and the back door's locked garage roller doors down. I do this every night before I go to bed. Then I'll head upstairs to bed. And normally I'm pretty good at going to sleep, but about two to three nights a week, just before I drift off to sleep, a thought will go across my mind. If my mother-in-law is here, she'd say, not a long journey, right? (laughs) But a thought will go across my mind, and it's this, have I locked the front door? And And immediately, a conversation starts up in my mind, and and I'm no longer as sleepy as I was a few minutes ago. Have I locked the front door? Yes, you went round and did that. And then I think, oh, maybe that was the night before that you went round and did that. And by this stage, I'm not as sleepy as I was a few minutes ago. I've learned, because this conversation happens in my mind a couple of times a week at least, the best thing for me to do at that point is just to get up out of bed and go down and check the front door. I've only found it unlocked once in my whole life. But that once is enough for me to keep doing it. You see, checking is the only way that I can be assured that the front door is locked. Now, it doesn't just have to be the front door for me. If I'm away on holiday, for example, did I turn the oven off before I left? I very rarely turn the oven on, but did I turn the <laughs> oven off before I left? What about the heaters? Did I switch those off? Did I remember to lock the shed? I wonder if you do a similar thing. Some of you might. See, when you're thinking this way, or at least when I'm thinking this way, 
What I really want is assurance that things will be okay. I want assurance that things will be okay. And it's assurance that makes this section of Romans so very much loved and so very important. Now, of course, it's nothing to do with assurance about whether the front door is locked. No, it's assurance that the gospel has the power of God to be salvation for all who believe. This is the last bit of Romans chapter 8, and it works as a kind of way of summing up all that has come before, all that we've talked about over the last eight weeks. And it, it basically says this. It says, have you got the message? Do you understand? God has done it. Because of his love for us, he solved the problem. The gospel really is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Remember, that was Paul's thesis statement right back at the start of chapter 1 in verses 17, 16 and 17. The gospel really is the power of God to bring salvation to all who believe. I've been talking about Romans as a walk up Mount Lofty and today we're at one of those lookout points where it's just a glorious outlook. I want to pause here with you today to take a look in at what this view is that Paul is helping us to see. I think what he's saying is that despite who we are, wretched and sinful, all of us, you and me, if we put our faith in Jesus, then we're part of God's family. And if we are chosen as part of that family, then our future is guaranteed. Paul's assuring us that despite being those who fall short of what God's standard is on a daily basis, nothing or no one can separate us from God. Over the next three weeks, I've asked Simon Marshman to come and preach to us. Simon is the maturity pastor at Trinity City Adelaide or Trinity Adelaide. He's a great guy. Many of you already know Simon. And in his great kindness, he has agreed to help us navigate through chapters 9 through to 11. They're not the easiest chapters of Romans. And that's kind of why we've jumped to the end of chapter 8 this morning, to get us ready for chapter 9 coming. Chapter 8 is a great chapter of Romans. We'll come back, I think, to some of the other gems in this chapter over the course of the next few years. And today we're just looking at this last section in Romans chapter 8. And it's structured around four big rhetorical questions. And each of these questions in the passage has an implied answer and it may even have another question kind of connected to it or a further statement that builds on the question. You'll see those four big questions in your leaflet if you want to follow along on the outline there. And we find the first of these big rhetorical questions in verse 31 of Romans chapter 8. It says this, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's an amazing rhetorical statement, isn't it? I immediately think of something like David and Goliath, the shepherd boy versus the giant of a man. And David triumphs because God is for him. If God is for us, who can be against us? I want us to also note in this verse the way in which Paul makes reference to what he's already said. I think he's throwing us right back to the start of the letter, to chapter 1, verse 18, where he said, remember back then, 
Well, back then at the start of chapter 1, God was not for us. His wrath was being revealed against all of us. Jews and Gentiles alike, you and I, we were all included in that place of wrath. And Paul builds his case, doesn't he? From there until chapter 3, verse 10, where he says this, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. That is how this letter starts out. A place of wrath. What then shall we say in response to all this? Well, if Romans went straight from chapter 3, verse 10 to chapter 8, verse 31, we'd have to say something like this, that we're without hope, that we're condemned. God's not our friend, no, God is our enemy. But Romans doesn't jump straight from chapter 3, verse 10 to chapter 8, and what lies in between is God's plan to reconcile people to himself. And we've worked our way through it week by week. Much of the time we've seen the language is legal in nature as Paul's tried to show us how God will bring about justice. In the back half of chapter 3, we read that justice comes through Jesus and that Jesus was handed over to death to be the atoning sacrifice for those who put their faith and trust in him. In chapter 4, we learnt that what's important for people is not that we attempt to to do better, not that we attempt to be good, but rather that we place our faith in Jesus. You know, remember chapter 4, verse 5, it says this, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Not the things we do that matters. It's not about being a better person. It's about having faith in Jesus. Then we got to chapter 5 and we, we see this beginning of this train of thought of Paul's about the two realms. He says you're either in Adam's realm, the realm of sin and death, or you're in Jesus' realm, the realm of life and grace. And we learn that we move from one realm to the other by our union with Jesus, which means that our old life has died. These are the, these things that come before in Romans. And in light of that, we ask If God is for us, who can be against us? And the implied answer is, of course, no one. Now, I think these verses could be misconstrued in a way where we might think of God as our secret weapon. Perhaps we might think of God as our star player. With God on our bench, no one will be able to beat us in a sporting analogy. Maybe South Africa had God on their team last night. Is that why England had no chance from the start? Of course not, right? Paul's not referring to a sporting game here or even to a military battle. Christians the world over have been defeated in sporting events and military battles. Christians the world over have suffered and we'll see in just a few verses' time, that's that's the life of the Christian. But those who have placed their hope in God and in his Son, well, their salvation is guaranteed. You might ask, how can that possibly be? And the answer's there in the next question. How does this all work? It says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So we know our salvation is guaranteed because God the Father has already given up 
his own son. He handed him over to death as an atoning sacrifice for our sinfulness. We've seen that time and time again in Romans since the end of chapter 3. Basically, Paul's saying if God has done this very huge thing, the giving up of his son, then we can be confident that he will do the rest of what he's promised to do. Now, I don't really want to equate our salvation with a set of steak knives, but um, when I read this, this is kind of the image that I get in my mind. I'm sure you've all um, had that experience where you've been sick at home one day, sitting on the couch, and uh, as you do when you're sick, you might be watching those infomercials on TV... You thought you'd never get that day back, right? Sitting on the couch at home watching infomercials. But here it's going to help you understand Romans chapter 8, I hope. See, the infomercials are all the same. If you buy this very expensive, fancy cooking machine, you know, that one that's kind of the heart-smart grilling machine where the fat just drains away, if you buy that, then we'll throw in six steak knives for free. And if you're a sucker and you buy that heart-smart grilling machine, you might regret your decision the next day, But you never sit back wondering, are the steak knives actually going to show up? If they're going to give you the wham-bang fancy grilling machine, then the steak knives are going to come up as well. Now, Christianity doesn't come with a set of steak knives, of course not. But place your hope and trust in Jesus and you can be sure that your salvation is guaranteed. Because here's the point, if God gave up his own son... Won't he also give us all things? The answer is, of course he will. So then you might ask, well, where's my shiny red Mini Cooper S that I've been praying for all of last year? Well, that's not what is on view here, is it? That's not what's promised. And so what's promised is a spot at the family table, at God's table. What's promised is that we'll be included with his family, that we'll be co-heirs with Christ. Let me read to you just a, a verse from earlier in the chapter, from verse 16. Chapter 8, it says this, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So here's the first assurance. If God has given up Jesus to death, he will certainly also make those who trust in him that they are heirs with Jesus and members of his family. The second of the four rhetorical questions we see in verse 33, it says, Who can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Now, over the page in verses 28 to 30, we see Paul mounting an argument that's supposed to be, I think, a great encouragement for us. He's saying that God has chosen those who are part of his family. And if he chose, then he foreknew. It follows then that God will also justify and glorify those he has chosen. Now, for some of us, we might find verses 28 to 30 a little tricky to understand. What does it mean that God would choose some? And for now, all I want you to see is what the text says. God has chosen some. And I don't want to get too sidetracked with this question today, uh, partly because next week Simon will be here and he can answer this tricky question for you when it comes up in chapter 9. What I want you to see today is that God has chosen some. And if he's chosen, 
who can bring a charge against them? At this point, we're back in the courtroom, aren't we? Remember the legal terminology of the earlier sections in Romans? Remember that God is a God of justice. Justice is one of his attributes and his characteristics. If you remember right back to chapter 5, we've been justified through faith. That means we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justice has been served. It's been worked out by our God. Paul says, then, who can bring a charge against God's people? And the implied answer is, of course, no one. Because we're declared by God, the greatest judge of all, as not guilty. We're not guilty. The third of the rhetorical questions is one about condemnation. And and for me, I love the imagery that uh, is in these verses. I find it so encouraging. See, if something is condemned, we're essentially saying it's, it's broken and it's of no use. So, a house that might be falling down with exposed wires and faulty plumbing and those sorts of things, that house might be condemned. Or a criminal might be condemned to jail for a crime because they're no longer any good or fit for society. I think here the condemnation that's on view is that we're not fit to be in God's family. Surely without Jesus that's all of us, not fit to be part of his family. And yet here we read, the implied response to Paul's question is that no one who has Jesus on their side will be condemned. And that's because Jesus is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. I find this image of this intercession so encouraging. Perhaps it's because I, I know that I need it so much. I wonder if you need it. Remember last week I talked about how I want to raise my kids with patience and gentleness and love. And yet when I'm tired and frustrated and when it feels like the kids are pushing all my buttons, as they would say, by purpose, then I don't do what I want to do. And so I need this intercession. Paul's under no illusions at this point about the Christian walk, is he? He knows that we need someone to intercede on our behalf. He knows that we'll trip up and that we'll fall down and mess up. But we have Jesus as the risen Lord at the Father's right hand, interceding for us. I'm the oldest of four children, so I don't have um, a big brother. But I can remember in the schoolyard, squabbles where the big brother stepped into the fray. You know, maybe have a similar experience in your life. When things were getting heated in the schoolyard, in steps that brother, the older brother, who's already gone through puberty and, and the potential of a fight, it just evaporates with the big brother there. Why would you even bother? There's no point. It's a foregone conclusion. The older brother has interceded. Now, of course, for most of us, life is not the schoolyard. But our life does still incorporate a spiritual battle, doesn't it? But it's a battle that we know the outcome of already. Jesus will win. And then even though it's won, it's a battle nonetheless, isn't it? There's an accuser. He's just lost his power and one day he'll be hurled down. I want you to see the reality of this. Come with me to Revelation chapter 12. You'll find that on page 1,926 of your Bibles. Revelation Chapter 12, 1,926. I just want you to see this language of the accuser and why we might need an intercessor today. 
Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. It says this on page 1926. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. The accuser, our accuser, has been hurled down, triumphed over by the blood of the Lamb, that is Jesus. And when you combine this picture with Romans 8, we just have this wonderful image, don't we? Jesus has defeated the accuser. And as our big brother, he sits at God's right hand, interceding for us, whispering into God's ear, I died for that person. Jesus intercedes on our behalf, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the majesty on high, standing in our defense. Do you want assurance today that God could forgive you, that God would judge you as righteous? Well, here it is. Our big brother, sitting at God's right hand, interceding on our behalf. And then having said all of that, Paul then asks the last of his rhetorical questions in this section. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In a way, Paul's dealt with some of the big theological issues that might have separated us from God. He's, he's dealt with our sinfulness. He's shown us how a holy and a just God, a righteous God, might make a family of people from people just like you or I. He's shown us how he does that in a legal sense. But maybe after all of that, maybe what you just want to know is, am I loved by God? What's it all for if God doesn't love us? I wonder how your week's been. Perhaps at the moment you don't feel particularly loved. Maybe this has been one of those weeks where it's been hard to make ends meet. Maybe work's been challenging. Maybe you've had an injury or you've had a health issue to distract you this week. For all of us, we have felt pain and the hardship of living in a broken world. This world can be cruel and hard. Some of us will have felt that more than others this week. But the reality is that few of us have never experienced the hardship of living in a broken world. But here we see Paul assuring us that hardship, real as it may be, will not separate us from the love of God. Certainly we can say that hardship and suffering is not evidence that God doesn't love us. I think that's the case that Paul is trying to make when he quotes from Psalm 44. At first blush, the verse he quotes might not make much sense. Let me just give you a sec just to have a look at those words that he quotes there. See them in your Bible. Why do you think he goes to those words at this passage? Why at this time? wonder what you think. I'm not sure if I've got this right, but I want to give you my thinking about how this works. Come with me to Psalm 44. You'll find it on page 881 of your Black Bibles. We're not going to read the whole psalm this morning, but I'm just going to pick a, a few bits with you to work our way through. Psalm 44. You'll find it on page 881 of your Bibles. The psalmist opens 
praising God. This is what they say. We have heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days, in the days long ago. It starts off as a psalm of praise. And it's a psalm about the military prowess of God by whom the Israelites of old conquered the land of Canaan. The psalm begins full of praise for a God who in the past acted with such power. But then in verse 9, the mood of the psalm changes. Let me read to you from verse 9. But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. No longer are the people in the psalm conquering, but rather they're being conquered, being devoured like sheep and sold for a pittance. Why? Why might this be? We might at this point jump to the conclusion that it's because they've turned their backs on God, that they're being punished for their rebellion. That would fit with what we know about how life was in Israel, wouldn't it? But have a look at verse 17. It says, All this came upon us, though we had not forgotten you, though we had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back, our feet had not strayed from your path, but you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. And in verse 22, we see the quotation used in Romans. And look what follows after that. Awake, Lord, rouse yourself, rise up and help us, rescue us. Why? Because of your unfailing love. What is going on here in the psalm? Perhaps like countless of people before them, the psalmist is writing about the effects of war. Suffering through war, not because of their sin, but because war is war. And so maybe, and I add maybe here because I could be wrong, maybe Paul is using this psalm as a way of saying sometimes things in this world just happen and, and we don't know why. Even those in God's family will still suffer. That suffering might not be because of our sinfulness or because God has forgotten us or that our backs have been turned on God. We live in a broken world after all. But we have good news, don't we? God has roused himself. He's shown his face, he's rescued us, and he's done it by giving up his son for us all. That won't stop the suffering of war, will it? Or injury or sickness. But what it does mean is we can say that we know God cares. We know God's revealed his face. God's not asleep at the wheel. We know that because he gave up his own son. That means that God is a God who can sympathize with us in these times. He too has experienced the pain of this world and he's acted to fix it. Through his son we've been rescued. And that son has been raised up and now intercedes for us. Because of his unfailing love for us. And so, like the psalmist of Psalm 44 who feels crushed, we too might feel crushed. But unlike the psalmist of Psalm 44, we know that we are not forgotten. 
so we can take and say we are more than conquerors because we know that we too will be raised up and we know that because of for his love for us All of this then leads into the final two verses of chapter 8 of Romans and it's that great view that I want you to see from the lookout on our walk up Mount Lofty. It's the best view that we've seen so far. It's the one where you can see right out to sea. You can see the horizon, the distance, but if you look from left to right, you can see from the north to the south of Adelaide, the whole way down. It's the view that you've been looking for. Let me read to you it from, from what Paul says. He says, For I am convinced... That neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The message of Romans is the message of the gospel and that is that this is really good news in Jesus. Can you see what God has done to restore and reconcile people to himself? We were all flawed. We all fell short of what God wants. Yet God has not forgotten us. He's not moved on to the next project. He's made a way for us to be in his family. He's not forgotten about the struggles that we experience in this world. If you've ever wondered... Can you be sure? If you've ever wondered, does God really care? Or maybe you've ever wondered, can God save me? Well, here's the double check, the assurance that you need. It's spelled out so clearly in this last section of Romans chapter 8. If you're like me, if you're a double door checker or even a triple checker of the front door, here's the assurance that you need. For those who are in God's family... There is nothing or no one who will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, we give you thanks that you haven't forgotten us. That despite the suffering we might encounter in this world, the pain that we might experience, whatever that looks like for us this week, that we can be confident that you have not turned away from us. We thank you that you've chosen us. We give you thanks that your son has made a way for us to be part of your family. We thank you for holding on to us. Amen.